Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we're back to our usual format today after several weeks of trying some slightly different things while Aaron was traveling and I was traveling last week. Um, and that normal format means that we have a news roundup for you up front with uh, three quick news topics that we'll address briefly. And today, um, that's the release of Spotify's financial uh, information for the year 2015. Uh, secondly, the uh, announcement that Microsoft is uh, making some more cuts in its phone business this time, uh, consumer smartphones and especially its uh, Finnish operations acquired from Nokia uh, follows on on a story that we talked about last week uh, and that it's going to refocus on the enterprise with its smartphone uh, operations. And then thirdly, uh, Twitter's proposed changes to the 140 character limit and specifically some of the things that are going to be exempted from that limit. So that will, that will conclude our news roundup and then uh, our middle topic will be a question of the week and we haven't done one of these for a while. Um, but the question of the week today uh, piggybacks off Aaron's recent trip to Ghana, um, which is uh, one of many trips he's made to Ghana over the last few years. And so we're going to be talking about the state of consumer technology in Africa and what Aaron's observed and what he's researched, uh, both based on his own experience and the other, the other research that he's done there. So that should be a really interesting middle topic. And then our third topic is going to be about Apple and AI and Google and AI and, and all these companies that are increasingly having to prioritize artificial intelligence and machine learning and what that means for Apple as a company that's perceived to be behind in this area and uh, whether that matters and to what extent it matters. And we'll talk about Siri and uh, some of the reports this week about how Siri might evolve and so on as well. So lots to talk about there in that third topic as well. And then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick. Uh, and that's a segment where one of us recommends something that we've been using recently and think our listeners might enjoy. So that's kind of our agenda for today. We'll kick off with our news roundup. Uh, and it was Spotify financials are our first topic. Um, this is interesting. Spotify is a private company. It's uh, registered in Luxembourg and I guess has to file some kind of financials with uh, the, the authorities in Luxembourg every year. And somehow these always leak out. And I haven't quite established whether this is a deliberate thing on Spotify's part or whether it just somehow does leak out um, in reality to various outlets. But the frustrating thing as an analyst for me is... Uh, not being able to just get the whole document. Basically, I have to rely on screenshots and individual data points reported by others to try to piece together these numbers. But I wrote a post this week about these numbers and uh, headline, very rapid growth over the last year, uh, not yet profitable and not necessarily making much uh, progress in that department either. Uh, biggest single reason being they're paying 80-something percent of their revenue straight through to the labels and artists. Uh, and that number is going up rather than down. Um, and one of the most interesting things that I found was just that if you compare Spotify's financials to uh, the annual industry report put out by the IFPI, which is the global industry body representing the music industry, uh, Spotify jumped from 50-something percent of total streaming paid streaming revenue to 80-something percent this past year. And so it's a really massive gain in share within that market if those numbers are to be believed. So really interesting stuff in there. Um, Aaron, did you find anything particularly interesting in all of this stuff? Yeah, you know, what really stuck out to me is just how hard it is to make money in this space. I mean, you know, with the subscriber growth and the revenue growth that Spotify has seen, you would expect their margins to be improving and they're not. And, you know, there's just there's something about the stranglehold that the that the content providers, right, the, the, the labels have on this on the media that's being streamed that. I don't know. It feels like it's holding it back. It's, it's you know, it, the problem is for Spotify is that this has all just been investor-fueled growth right now, and there's going to have to be a, a point at which they can grow based off of profit. Um, 
And uh, it also makes me wonder how much Apple is subsidizing Apple Music to, to yeah. you know, increase its market penetration. Yeah, that was one of the big questions that came out for me too, is that while Spotify at its massive scale is not making money, then, you know, to what extent is Apple making money? And the big difference, obviously, is Apple doesn't have to spend near as much money on uh, marketing and so on. It has a captive, you know, base of iPhone users that, you know, just suddenly got an Apple Music app show up on their screens a few months ago and so on and so forth. Uh, and Apple obviously has massive scale around other parts of its business, which means it probably doesn't have to provide the same sorts of advances and guarantees and things to labels that, it, that Spotify would have to as a sort of startup company. But it does raise the question of, you know, how profitable is this business actually going to be for the companies that are in it? Uh, and, and, you know, are you in this business to make money if you're Apple? Or are you in the business just to make sure that you're checking the boxes from an ecosystem perspective? Well, and the other possibility is just that having the free tier um, is absolutely hammering the way Spotify does business, um, you know, and, and hopefully it, it'll be interesting to see how long Spotify holds on to that. I think the thing that I had never appreciated was just how puny the the free tier, you know, ad-based revenue is compared to the, the paid subscriber revenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tiny. It's, it's uh, you know, 10% of the revenue, but, you know... Uh two-thirds of the subscribers, basically. So it's, it's this really strange mismatch where it's sort of three, four dollars a year uh, versus, <clears throat> sorry, three, four euros a year versus uh, 80, 90 euros a year um, from a paid, paid subscription customer. So yeah, big differences there. And if this subject's of interest, we'll, we'll post a link to my piece that I did this week breaking down some of these numbers. I'd also recommend that if you haven't listened to it yet, you go back and listen to episode 45 where uh, I interviewed somebody from the music industry and talked about a lot of the economics around all of this. Uh, our second news roundup topic is um, is two weeks in a row now we're talking about Microsoft making cuts in its phone business. Last week it was about selling the feature phone business to Foxconn and some other related transactions. And then this week we're talking about uh, a charge that Microsoft is taking financially um, for uh, making some cuts in its smartphone business um, and specifically cutting a large part of the remaining Finnish operation acquired from Nokia and a refocus of that smartphone business on the enterprise market and business customers specifically. And a few months back, Microsoft had announced, you know, a previous sort of restructuring of that business, but there were three focuses at that time. And I remember we talked about it at the time and said it wasn't much of a focus because it basically covered almost everybody in the market. But um, it was low-cost devices and then fan and flagship devices and then business devices. And so they've basically abandoned the first two of those three focus areas and are now going to focus pretty much exclusively on the business market going forward. What was your take about all of this? Well, I'm fascinated about what Microsoft's ideas are going into the business market with the phone, um, especially because bring your own device has, has been, I, I don't know if dominant is the right word in the, in the corporate setting, but it's been so, so influential in the corporate setting that, you know, obviously consumer preferences heavily, heavily influence the way corporations are buying mobile phones now. And so I'm trying to imagine the right scenario where Microsoft can convince an IT department or an IT manager to buy a bunch of Microsoft phones and then get everybody in the company using them uh, because it will, it will definitely be swimming against the tide. But that was true, right, for the consumer business when it was going. Anybody who bought one was swimming against the tide there. So maybe, I, I mean, obviously Microsoft is leaning most heavily on the fact that it's had strong business relationships for years and that's been, you know, it's bread and butter for so long. 
Um, but I'm not sure it's going to carry over and be useful in, in when it comes to mobile phones. Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting things here. I mean, one, one thing is, you know, the BYO, BYOD trend has been huge over the last few years, but it's not everybody yet. And there are at least a couple of other models that still operate in the business devices market. And one of those is kind of the traditional model. So and all of these things have little acronyms that go with them. So Kobo is the traditional model, so corporate-owned <clears throat> and business-only. Uh, so, you know, we own the device, you only use it for work, basically. And that's still quite common in the highly regulated industries, so government and finance and healthcare and a few others. Um, there's a sort of a middle model, which gets alternatively called COPE or CYOD. Uh, and COPE is corporately owned, personally enabled. So in other words, it, the company owns it, but I still get to use it as my personal device. And the other version of that is CYOD, so choose your own device. So we give you a range of devices to choose from. Uh, and so BYOD, you know, there's no real relevance for Microsoft there. But in those other models, there's, there's obviously a place for what Microsoft's trying to do here. The challenge is, you know, BlackBerry's collapsed. So you might think there's some kind of opportunity there. But at the same time, Apple and Samsung have got very strong in that space. Um, Samsung has this Knox security solution that's very strong now. Um, that's that's really great on the Android side, and then you know the iPhones got stronger and stronger, and they had these partnerships with IBM and Cisco, and now SAP around enterprise device support, and so there's a lot that they've got going for them as well. So it's not as simple as just walking in and scooping up all of that opportunity. But there are obviously a lot of companies that still very largely rely on Microsoft devices and Microsoft management tools that are obviously well suited to managing Windows 10 devices specifically. Um, I think the other thing that's worth thinking about is, you know, this is likely to be a Surface phone when it does emerge um, probably early next year sometime. Um, and presumably Microsoft will be trying to apply some of what it's done uh, with the Surface sort of tablet line uh, here. But if you look at what that's majored on, it's been doing Windows really well and then, you know, doing unique things with the form factor. And the challenge with smartphones is Windows is more of a liability than an asset. Uh, and then you can't do much with form factors. Ultimately, it's going to be some kind of rectangle. Um, you know, there's nowhere near the room for kind of form factor variations within smartphones that there is within PCs. And so that makes it quite hard to apply the same sorts of uh, changes there. So it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, it's basically going to be a niche within a niche. And the other big question is just, you know, whether you can do that at sufficient scale to make it pay off. And that, that I think, is the single biggest question for Microsoft at this point with this phone business is, you know, can they make money from something that's going to be fairly small, probably? And I think that's the most important point, because they have to do all the same work that Android, uh, that Google does with Android, that Samsung does with its phones, that Apple does with its phones for a much smaller market. Right. I mean, it's 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 not like the the basic components aren't going to be the same across all of these different devices, including the Surface phone, you know, or whatever it is that Microsoft comes out with. And so they're going to have to put in the same investment as these other companies, but competing for a much, much smaller slice of the pie. Right. Absolutely. All right. So our third news roundup topic is Twitter and um following literally years of requests for this and uh, indications that Twitter was thinking about doing something, uh, they finally announced this week that they are, in the coming months, finally going to change the way the 140-character limit works. And specifically, it's going to exempt certain kinds of content uh, from that limit. So usernames and media. Um, so that could be photos, could be videos, could be URLs, could be polls and things like that will be exempted from the limit. And there are going to be a couple of other small tweaks as well in terms of uh, visibility of at replies and things like that. 
Um, but and and the, basically, the reason it's not launching right away is they need to give their developers, you know, third-party apps and so on, time to integrate these changes. Um, but it's just been a very long time coming, and it's one of these things where Twitter desperately needs to get its user growth going again, and yet. Here you have yet another announcement that seems mainly oriented towards power users, uh, many of whom really didn't seem to understand the changes very well either. I mean, there was a New York Times piece um, by somebody who uses Twitter a great deal who still managed to get some of it wrong, and it just kind of illustrates the challenges of, and the complexity associated with using Twitter, which is you know, arguably one of the biggest problems. None of this solves that. It just um, shifts the complexity perhaps to a different place, um, but does nothing to, to address user growth. Yeah, I, I, Twitter is so glacial in product development, it makes me question global warming. <laughs> I mean, it is it it blows me away how slow they are in their in in innovating in their product. I mean, it's you know these are all very very minor changes to what is essentially the same thing from from when they launched. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot to be said for having a core quality product that people can rely on, but at the same time, you know. Twitter's been out long enough, and the basic product has been out in the market long enough that, 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 and we've talked about this exact problem before. Everybody who's ever going to try Twitter has tried Twitter. Like everybody who has a smartphone, you know, everybody who might be a Twitter customer has has already tried it, and so they have to do something different. And this is not. I feel like this is deja vu because we had this exact conversation. This is right. not the kind of change that's going to bring new people, and and granted. They may, they're probably not thinking about the change this way. This seems like it's mostly just oriented to, you know, placate the more power users. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, it, 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 it's hard to it's hard to understand why this has been so slow in figuring out innovative ways to develop the platform. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And and <clears throat> I mean, I, as a power user, I'm grateful for it. It's something that you know I, I deal with this frustration all the time that. I have to often choose between putting in a link or putting in a picture because if I put in both, I go over the limit and then I have to truncate the text and so on. So it will be helpful, but it just doesn't address the more fundamental issues at all. And, and it feels like Twitter still doesn't quite get what they need to do to, to evolve the product to, to address user growth and, and make it simpler for people to use. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said at the beginning, uh, the question of the week this time revolves around consumer technology in Africa. And by way of background, and, and Aaron may talk about this in a minute, but Aaron spent quite a few years uh, spending some time in, in Ghana specifically. Um, and so our question is, what is the state of consumer tech in Africa? And Aaron's just got home from one of those trips and, and will be sharing some of that with us. Um, but uh, specifically, it had been a few years in between trips for Aaron. And so he saw some sort of more dramatic changes this time around. So um, let's start out just by talking about kind of what this consumer tech market opportunity is. How big is this opportunity really? What are we talking about here? Sure. Well, um, you know, it's been interesting watching this change take place. So I've been going to Ghana now for nine years uh, for about two to three weeks at a time. And so I'm, I've basically have these annual snapshots with the exception of, you know, like you mentioned from this last trip to my the, the time between this last trip and its previous one was about three years. And so I saw a more significant jump that I'll be mentioning. Um, the one thing that is really kind of the, the strong thing you get about Ghana is growth, or not Ghana, but Africa generally, Ghana included, is growth. I mean, Africa at last measure had 1.1 billion people. That's that's a couple years old, so obviously it's beyond that number now. In fact, of the major geographic areas in the world, it has the fastest growing population, faster than Asia, um, and it also has the second fastest economic growth, second 
behind Asia only. And so this is a continent that is seeing explosive growth. Now, the, the problem with measuring everything by growth is it's easy to ignore the base from which the growth is occurring. And obviously Africa has been behind in its economic development for a long time. And so it's, it's growing off of a pretty low base. And we'll get into the details there. Um, that said, the average economic growth in Africa has been about 6% per year, um, which is roughly double what population growth has been. And that's a, that's a fundamentally very positive story because this, this uh, economic growth has not just been the simple product of, of the population growth in the country. Um, there are a couple important things we need to sort of lay as a groundwork when it comes to talking about Africa. There's a difference, for example, between Africa as an entire continent and what's referred to as sub-Saharan Africa. Because when we talk about all the countries south of the Sahara Desert, we're talking about a, a different group culturally. We're talking about a different group linguistically and definitely economically. And so there are going to be a few moments where we make a reference to Africa generally and others when I refer to sub-Saharan Africa more specifically. And I'll make sure to, to make those distinctions clear. Um, but, uh, but for Africa generally, what's been fascinating is that uh, the consumer market in Africa has been growing as part of this economic boom. In fact, uh, during the 2000s, economic growth, 45% of economic growth came from consumer-facing or at least partially consumer-facing sectors, which is surprising because when most people think of Africa, they think of natural resources. Um, but it turns out that uh, consumer-facing sectors actually had a higher share of this economic growth than the industrial, than the, the natural resource sectors did. Um, but what's interesting about that, and this is another part of the Africa story, is that a lot of this growth is actually concentrated in particular parts of the continent. In fact, 10 countries, so with that rapid growth, especially in consumer-facing sectors, um, only 10 countries accounted for 81% of private consumption. And this is from 2011, so it's a few years old, but, but only 10 countries made up 80% of private consumption. And so you can you get a very strong sense from that that there's a, there's a, a, a strong, narrow uh, 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 element to the growth of consumer industries in the, in the, on the continent. Those countries, by the way, were Algeria, Angola, Egypt, Ghana, Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, South Africa, Sudan, Tunisia. If you're listening closely as I ran through that list, you'd notice that half of these countries are North African. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of the Arabic countries from the north. That's right. And so what we're really talking about are five notable countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically Angola, Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. Although I would say that Ethiopia is coming up really fast. And Ethiopia now has 80 million people, and, and, uh, and the, the economy is rapidly growing. Um, of the sub-Saharan African countries, I think the most interesting and notable one right now is actually Nigeria, um, primarily because of the huge chunk they make up of, of Africa. In fact, Nigeria accounts for one-sixth of the entire continent's population and one-fifth of the sub-Saharan uh, population. So Nigeria is this massive, massive country population-wise compared to the rest of the continent. And uh, it's also, it's, it's had a couple of rocky years recently economically, but it's also been a very strong driver of growth. Nigeria's struggles primarily relate to low oil prices because that's been a major export for the country for years. Um, the, the general trend though, the general feel you get in, in Africa generally is that things are growing, although it's, you know, the middle class is growing slowly. It's only grown from 5% of the 
of the continent to 7% in the last decade. Um, what's really happening with all this growth is that the absolute poorest are getting less poor. Um, you know, after the UN set the Millennium Development Challenge goals um, back, uh, it was about 20 years ago now, um, you know, Africa, I think, probably saw the biggest gains relative to those goals. One of them specifically, uh, poverty reduction. In fact, Ghana was the first mo was the first developing nation to actually cut its poverty rate in half, and it did that uh, now about six years ago. What you're seeing is is a young a young continent. Um, it's also surprisingly optimistic. And McKinsey, there's a McKinsey report we're going to link to. Uh, on the website uh, about the, the the rising African consumer. So this is a young group, it's an optimistic group, and it's also increasingly urbanizing. Um, now, consumer tech is obviously a really, really broad topic, and so I think it, it's most interesting if we just focus on three things that make Africa unique or interesting. One is phones, uh, the second is internet, and then finally we'll talk about banking, which seems unrelated, but there's some fascinating stuff to talk about there. Sure, yeah. So, so why don't we kick things off with phones then? So talk to us a little bit about what's going on with phones and, and um, trends there and how they might be different from the rest of the world. Sure. So uh, back in the early 2000s, there was a nonprofit called uh, Grameen Foundation USA that had launched a, a what they call the Village Phone Program. And the idea was that, and this is based on a program that had been run in Bangladesh by Grameen Bank. And the idea was that, you know, cell phones are still pretty expensive. And so what what the way this program worked is a woman could buy a phone using a microloan and then become essentially the phone person for their village and so they could rent out the use of their phone to anybody else in their community and then and then they would make money and then pay back their loan um, that program became obsolete shockingly fast and the reason was because cell phone use exploded in sub-saharan africa over the last decade uh, in fact, if you look at cell phone penetration in South Africa, Ghana, Kenya, and Nigeria, it is actually on par with the U.S. and other developing nations. So, so cell phone penetration has gone really far, and all the other countries in sub-Saharan Africa are rapidly catching up. And so the, what's happened is Nokia and others produce really inexpensive, uh, well-made, uh, rugged, battery-efficient basic dumb phones that uh, even people who live in communities, you know, far away from cities could 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 afford to purchase and, and set up on prepaid plans. Um, smartphone penetration is, I think, the more interesting current right. story. Um, it's growing pretty quickly. South Africa has the highest smartphone penetration right now at about a third of the country. Um, Ghana, for example, is at about 17% by uh, one measure I found. A anecdotally in Ghana, um, I saw a surprising number of smartphones this time around, especially phablets. Um, those were really popular as, uh, you know, just hybrid devices. Um, the thing that surprised me is I, I saw even college kids. I mean, we met with a couple different groups of college kids, and, uh, and I was really surprised at the number of them that had smartphones. Um, there's a really, there is a, a really deep penetration already in Ghana of, of smartphones among white collar professionals. Um, based on some Pew research, um, the primary use of smartphones in Ghana is, I think, what you would expect. It's first of all texting, um, and that's true for all cell phones, including dumb phones. Um, there are a lot of feature phones in Ghana, and so the second most, the second highest use for phones in Ghana in, in Africa is taking pictures and video. 
um, people have really jumped on the idea of preserving those memories. What's interesting is that they do it with this incredibly high risk of never backing up the device, you know, uh, it, it potentially having to lose it someday. And so uh, there's no there's no preservation of these pictures or video, which is sad. But I'm sure as smartphones continue to penetrate and internet use continues to penetrate, that will change. Um, there is a lot of future opportunity in the app market for sure. Uh, because this market is still very much in its infancy. Um, you know, we talked last week about Apple in India and how they, you know, were putting these big efforts behind getting more apps developed for the Indian market. Um, uh, Africa is is very much at the start of that market as well. And so the people who can develop good Android apps for uh, the African countries that are seeing increased smartphone usage have, have a chance to, you know, it still feels like very fresh territory. Um, in terms of brands of phones, um, I would say that Samsung had the strongest hardware presence. They also have a very strong retail presence in Africa. Um, Ghana, so the first time I ever went to Ghana nine years ago, um, uh, the big switch versus the second time I went, which was just a year later, was that Ghana had a mall, like a Western-style mall. Um, for the, and it was the first one in the country. And there was a Samsung retail store there from the very beginning. And you see the Samsung logo everywhere um, in Ghana. And, uh, and so I think, but, but in spite of some Samsung's strong hardware presence and strong brand presence, the reality is, is that most people aren't paying attention to phone models or brands. Um, the, what I noticed anecdotally anyway is that it, there were so many different kinds of smartphone devices and phablets that uh, that I was kind of, you know, I, I couldn't have identified them. Whereas, you know, if you're in the U.S., for example, you know, somebody's walking down the street with their phone up, you can probably say, oh, that's a Galaxy, right? Or or that's an iPhone. And that was, that was a, uh, it was not nearly that easy in Ghana because I think, I think there's just a lot more variety of the phones that find their way into the market there. Um, Android obviously also has the strongest software presence, um, though I did see a surprising number of iPhones. Although I have to admit, I only saw them among the upper, very upper class kind of people, like the people who are driving, you know, expensive cars. They were, they were the ones who tended to have iPhones. Right. One of the things that's always been interesting about Africa and some other emerging markets is that it's not just about the cost of the phones and even the cost of the cellular plans, but it's basic things like electricity, right? And so especially as you go out of some of the urban areas into more rural areas, you know, access to electricity is one of the biggest barriers because you have to have some way to charge the thing. Um, what, what did you see in terms of kind of differences between urban and rural uh, adoption of some of these things and how are people getting around to some of this stuff? So this last trip, I spent most of my time in urban areas, although I, in past projects, we have spent quite a bit of time in rural areas. And the thing that always sort of struck me in the, in the more rural areas we visited was how people would have cell phones with perfectly adequate cell phone signals, but they wouldn't have running water or electricity. Uh, in fact, some of these people with cell phones were living in mud huts, and 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 that obviously was really surprising. Um, the problem that they face is that you know they'll generally keep their phone off unless they need it. Um, when they uh, when their battery cell phone battery does uh, fall, as they call it in Ghana, it doesn't die; it falls. Um, they go. They they end up having to travel an hour and usually pay the equivalent of one to two dollars to charge their cell phone. Um, if you think of the the time cost and the financial cost of that, it's it's not very sustainable. And so one of the trends you see in the rural areas 
is uh, is solar access because electricity is still moving slowly through the country and through the continent. And so sol you're seeing a lot of solar devices designed. They might include lighting, but in addition to lighting, they'll have like a, you know, either USB jack or, or, or some other way to connect your cell phone and charge up your cell phone off of the solar device. Um, that's a pretty... Uh, that's a pretty fast-growing uh, device trend I've seen now in Africa. Right, interesting. So you talked about the penetration of smartphones and how it's growing rapidly. Obviously, a big part of what makes that worthwhile is internet access. And so how, how developed is internet access? What's changing there? How do most people access the internet as far as what you can see? This is another thing that I think will be surprising to, to most people uh, is that internet penetration... Uh, by multiple measures, is actually on par right now with China and Brazil, um, and obviously that's because internet in Africa is is primarily mobile-based, which makes it easy to extend internet access elsewhere. Um, internet access also is primarily prepaid. Um, even professionals uh, don't tend to have postpaid plans nearly as much as they do in the U.S. or in Europe. Uh, prepaid plans. Uh, the, the data is actually not too expensive, and it's hard to compare, and so it, I didn't have like a, here's the average cost of, of prepaid data access, mobile data access, but, but it, it, it's actually not too terribly expensive. Um, the thing that surprised me in this latest trip was saying that LTE is starting to get off the ground in Ghana and in Africa generally. Um, in fact, there were some specific vendors. In fact, there's one vendor in particular that is a company that actually started off as an as a, an internet cafe in the country, and now they've grown. They're called Busy Internet, and now they're offering one of the first um, 4G sort of access points um, in the country for a surprisingly reasonable price. In fact, I, I sort of got tuned into it at the end of the trip and I regretted it cause I would have just bought one at the start if I had known about it cause it was, it was pretty reasonably priced. And so LTE is getting off the ground, but that said 3G still has a lot of headroom. Um, and so primarily because there are still so many dumb phones that people are using in the continent that, uh, that there's a lot of room still for people to, to even sign up for 3G connections. By 2020, uh, according to one report, I think this is Pew, they estimated that Sub-Saharan Africa should have the second most 3G connections behind Asia. Wow. And so uh, there's obviously still a lot of room for rapid growth in, in data uh, through mobile internet. Um, the, the, what people do with mobile internet access or internet access generally in Africa is what you would expect. It's social networking. Um, in fact, that's the first primary use of, of internet access by a decent margin. And the platforms, the social networking platforms, and this is something that I sort of knew just by the connections with friends I have in Ghana, but, uh, but I didn't know what it was for Africa generally. And so doing some digging, it turns out that the, the, most, the most popular social networking platform in Africa is Facebook. And, and, you know, that's not necessarily the case in other parts of the world, especially in Asia, like in right. China. But um, but in Africa, Facebook is easily the most popular uh, social networking platform. Instagram has some users. Twitter has some users. Um, South Africa has had its own um, social network that grew rapidly kind of at the start. But the, the feeling I'm getting from some reading is that uh, Facebook is kind of taking over as it takes over the continent more generally. Right. Interesting. I would say that, you know, internet access that's mobile-based is, is surprisingly good. 
all things considered. Um, but anecdotally, I would I would say that Wi-Fi and the use of Wi-Fi is in a pretty miserable state. <laughs> At least that's that's my observation from Ghana, and I, I am extrapolating this, but I, I don't think I'm doing that unreasonably. Uh, you know, really good, well-made Wi-Fi is is a is a unique technical expertise. And so, for example, in Ghana, I never once have, even yet, now nine years in, I still haven't encountered really strong, well-made mesh networking at any, like, location. Um, and I think that reflects two things. One, it reflects a general lack of technical expertise. I think, you know, a network engineer who can set up a great Wi-Fi mesh network is 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 really valuable, and that's a hard skill. And... Uh, and I think the other problem is also that uh, getting the equipment into the country is a challenge. And I know this from a friend who runs an IT business there. I mean, if you want to get some nice Cisco equipment, for example, um, it's pretty hard to get it into the country and through customs and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and so a lot of Wi-Fi over there is actually run on Wi-Fi for large-scale applications like hotels, businesses, and those sorts of things, it's run off of uh, consumer-grade Wi-Fi equipment that's really only intended for residential use. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth is, when it comes down to it, Wi-Fi needs to get better for you know, broad consumer Internet access. Mm-hmm. And because um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of ways that Wi-Fi is important beyond and can do more than just mobile can do. And so I think that technology is going to have to improve over there. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about banking. I mean, Africa has been interesting in that it's kind of the one place where mobile banking really took off and it's in a couple of specific markets. I think Kenya, uh, Tanzania to some extent as well, some other countries where um, there's a particular mobile operator called Safaricom that had this M-Pesa solution that, that was very popular and achieved, achieved very high penetration. And so it's unique in that sense. You know, we're used to in more mature markets, kind of mobile payments and so on being the main sort of manifestation of, of money on mobile devices, but it's very different in Africa. Do you want to talk us through that a little bit? It really is. So one of the big problems in Africa is that uh, credit card merchants like Visa, you know, uh, MasterCard, Discovery, American Express, they don't have really any penetration into African markets. I mean, it was really only this last trip in Ghana that I started to notice a reasonable, uh, reasonable is too strong of a word, <laughs> a smattering of locations that actually took credit cards. Um, and it's so there's a lot of cash based uh, commerce flowing back and forth throughout Africa. What's so fascinating about Kenya and M-Pesa and the way it's spread, and it's it's since spread to Tanzania, Uganda, and South Africa, and Nigeria also has a pretty rapidly growing mobile payment system. Um, M-Pesa is, is gigantic in Kenya. Um, uh, it is, in fact, there was a measure I found that said that uh, 43%, during one year, 43% of Kenya's GDP passed through M-Pesa. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, imagine like Apple saying something like that about Apple Pay, like in, in the U.S. I mean, obviously, Apple Pay will never hit that hit that size because the U.S. economy is just so huge. But but that that only adds emphasis to how big of a deal mobile payments are in parts of Africa. And, and there's a level of convenience because it's all SMS based. Well, not anymore. Now it's it can be more sophisticated than SMS, but still you can use you can make payments just via SMS. Uh, it is it's 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 absolutely massive over there and i think what's going to be really fascinating is to see how well as 
as internet penetration increases and as smartphone penetration increases, it'll be interesting to see how well mobile banking, especially the leaders in mobile banking like M-Pesa, how well they maintain their, their market position. I suspect they're going to be able to pull it off. But, uh, you know, the way we think of mobile banking in the U.S. is very, very different than the way they do in these countries in Africa. And it is, it's a fascinating aspect of consumer technology because it really has been enabled by, by the fact that so many people have cell phones, just even basic dumb phones. And, and it's opened up a, a market that, uh, that, that really exploded over there but hasn't done anything close to in other countries. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading an article, I think, a couple of weeks ago about the M-Pesa service and how they were basically abandoning South Africa. So uh, the reason seemed to be that they just couldn't achieve the kind of scale that they needed to. And the reason for that, in turn, was that they have pretty high financial inclusion there already. In other words, most people have bank accounts or credit cards and things. And so your addressable market's just that much smaller. And so it's, it's really the fact that there is so many, there is such a high percentage of the population that's unbanked in Africa that, that makes this kind of thing possible. That's, uh, you know, there are still, there are still retail banking locations, like physical locations in Africa, sure. but, but for a lot of people, it's just way too much of an effort to get there. I mean, if we gripe in the U.S. about having to drive five minutes to get to our local bank, <laughs> um, you know, these are people who would have to travel for half a day or a full day just sure. to get to their bank. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you kind of talked about a lot of specific areas, but were there any kind of broad themes or sort of observations that you have from, from everything both that you saw as you were there and from the research that you've done? Yeah, I think there are kind of three big lessons right now when it comes to consumer tech in Africa. Um, one, and this is this is sort of based on the success that Nokia had and the other dumb phone manufacturers had on the continent, is that con consumer tech still needs to adapt to the, what makes Africa unique. And in fact, specifically in three areas, it has to be efficient. Um, both in terms of power usage and data usage. Um, internet is still not super fast there. And, and, and we already talked about people having to travel for miles just to charge a cell phone. And, and so mobile, so consumer tech still has to have that power and data efficiency. And I think that will continue to be the case for a while yet. Um, obviously also it needs to be durable. Um, I think anybody working in a rural setting, whether it's rural in the US or rural in Africa, you need durable consumer tech. And that's obviously still true. In, in a place in a, on a continent where a lot of people are still living in rural areas, although that's changing as time goes on, there's more urbanization. Uh, but an interesting aspect of consumer tech that I think gives an edge to a lot of producers is also having it locally repairable. Um, in fact, this isn't tech specifically, but this is related to one of the projects that our students were doing this last time around. Our, the, the MBA students were doing a project for Ford and one of the early pieces of feedback, Ford doesn't have much of a penetration in West Africa, and they're trying to figure out how to get more cars sold in that market. And one of the really early points of feedback that these students discovered is that Ford doesn't have a great network of repair shops and available parts. And, uh, you know, the truth is Africans have are incredibly, incredibly resourceful, and they can get equipment running for years and years beyond its, its originally designed lifespan. And, and, but they pull that off by having access to, to parts to be able to do repairs. And Ford doesn't really have much of that there right now. And, and it's the same thing in consumer tech. I, I think you see a lot of people there, you know, there are a lot of businesses there for fixing broken screens, replacing, you know, fallen batteries. And, and uh, I think if, you're, if your consumer tech is highly repairable, you're probably going to be more likely to succeed in the short run, at least in Africa right now. Um, <clears throat> I think another theme is that brand still matters a lot to Africans. 
there's a misconception that among the the poor in developing countries are not very brand sensitive, and the the opposite is actually true. And the reason is because these purchases that uh, a lot of wealthier people in, in more developed countries, you know, if you buy something and, the, and it doesn't work out, it doesn't have the same effect as it would in uh, in the developing world, especially in Africa. Your your purchases carry a lot more significance as a share of your income. And so, uh, so brand is a really, really important signal to uh, people in Africa. And so... So I think having a strong brand presence is a really important aspect of consumer tech being successful there. And I would add to that that Africans, I've noticed, are very keen to trust African brands. Um, they they will jump onto something that feels more uniquely African because they feel like that brand gets them. And so there's a lot of room for uh, startups, uh, even consumer tech startups, I think, to be successful there. Um, there's a there's a local cell phone brand in Ghana, for example, that uh, that people that is done reasonably well in part because people feel like okay, these are being made by the people I know, uh, even though I think a lot of the assembly is actually happening in China. But it's but the products are being designed with Ghanaians in mind, and so brand is another theme I think that matters a lot, and and, and we might overlook the importance of that. The the last thing, and, and I think this is going to be the big sort of economic theme we're going to see in, in Africa is this idea of leapfrogging. I, they are going to, all of these countries in Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, are going to leapfrog a lot of the technological advances that we've relied on the West as part of our economic growth. So, for example, mobile internet is going to be the first source of internet access for the majority of people. Um, whereas that was not the case in the U.S. where we grew through wired internet access. And that's, that's, that's going to be a huge change as everybody will, that their, first, their first access to the internet will be through a mobile device. Mobile devices are going to be the first access for computing for a lot of these people. Their first computing device in a smartphone is going to be a smartphone instead of a, a, a PC or a laptop. You know, that's in spite of all the effort to have like the, the one laptop per child initiative and all that. That simply is not as useful or as efficient as giving people smartphones. And giving is the wrong idea. I mean, you just want to sell people smartphones and, and that's how the economy will grow there. Uh, mobile banking, again, the same thing. Um, you know, instead of physical retail, which is how banking has grown in the developed world, um, mobile banking is going to be the default. And most people will never enter a bank during the course of a year and still be able to carry out all their banking needs. I, I will add, though, that ATMs are, are pretty common in, in Africa, um, including ATMs that are hooked into the Visa and MasterCard networks. But what's important to point out is that Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover, they should be nervous about the significance of mobile banking in Africa because they are missing out on a lot of payment processing. And, if, and, and there's a chance that, that that entire network could be leapfrogged in Africa where the only people who really need access are, are expats or foreigners coming into the country. So, or into the, you know, into whatever country where they're working. And then finally, um, the, I think the, one of the really interesting things that's going to happen in Africa is that there's going to be leapfrogging uh, of technology in the power grid as well. Ghana is fascinating because it's grown really quickly. It is easily one of the most economically stable countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and yet they have been struggling for years now with uh, power outages. And it has, uh, it has to do, there is a unique aspect to their power coming primarily from one hydro facility in the country. Uh, and Ghana's not that big. It's about the size of Oregon geographically. Um, but, uh, 
but uh, true to but, but infrastructure power infrastructure is hard and it's expensive and solar is gaining steam and i think i think you're going to see a really interesting leapfrog effect in africa over the next 30 years where, where the sort of traditional power grid is not going to not going to be the way most people are getting access to power it's going to be through solar or other or other more distributed means Great. Well, thanks, Aaron. That's a great roundup of <clears throat> what's going on with consumer technology in Africa. You mentioned a couple of reports and things as you went through, so I, I will link to those on the uh, podcast website at podcast.beyonddevices. Um, so our third topic, as I mentioned at the beginning, is going to be a discussion of um, Apple and AI to some extent. It's really a broader conversation about uh, a range of different companies in AI, but we'll focus a bit on Apple specifically. Uh, and the context for this is a few different things. One is, you know, last week we talked about Google's I.O. announcements and, and we didn't talk specifically about AI and machine learning until right at the very end of the episode. But it's clear kind of undercurrent to everything that was announced last week is, is Google's expertise in artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, this week there were a couple of pieces. I think over the weekend, Marco Arment, who has been an iOS developer and, and now styles himself as an Apple analyst, uh, wrote a piece about uh, Apple and AI in which he compared the current state of Apple to BlackBerry in about 2006. Uh, Walt Mossberg had a similar sort of uh, theme in a piece that he wrote this week. Uh, and then there's been a lot of other stuff as well. And then uh, The Information, uh, which is a subscription uh, news publication, had a piece this week about uh, Siri being opened up uh, to third parties uh, and also suggested that Apple was working on a sort of Siri box, uh, as Aaron calls it, so a sort of Echo or Google Home equivalent. Um, and then there's a whole range of other stuff to talk about here too, but, but that's kind of the context of what we're talking about. And really, the thrust of what Marco Arment was talking about, what Mossberg and others have talked about, is you know, Apple doesn't do AI or machine learning well, and therefore it will kind of fall behind during this next phase of where technology goes and that that will be sort of potentially enormously damaging to it. Um, and so that's really what I wanted to talk about uh, in this last segment here is, you know, whether that's true, you know, whether there's merit to that argument and so on. Um, you know, just to kick things off, I think one of the biggest challenges here is that, you know, AI expertise is not binary. You're not either good or not good at AI, um, especially once you're kind of in the business. And Apple certainly just isn't entirely absent in this stuff. Obviously, it, it launched Siri a number of years ago. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in last year's revision to Siri that, that is very much kind of in the artificial intelligence machine learning sphere that makes it more useful. Um, the, the proactive is the brand that Apple uses for some of that stuff. Um, you know, Apple's clearly not absent in this stuff. So this isn't a binary thing of, you know, the companies X, Y, and Z are good at this and Apple is bad at this. It's all these companies operate on a spectrum. And yes, you know, it's almost undeniable that Google's kind of ahead there. Facebook uh, seems to be pretty far ahead as well. And Apple perhaps behind those two and Microsoft perhaps somewhere in the middle. Um, but the point is, is, it's not binary. And to my mind, the biggest question is not, you know, is Apple bad at AI, but how far back is Apple? And, and is it far enough behind that it really starts to matter in terms of user experience and to the extent that that ultimately kind of offsets some of the other advantages that it has? Now, what's your feeling about all this, Aaron? Well, I, you know, we the, Apple's made some interesting acquisitions in this space over the last few years, and what typically, and that, and this was true of the Siri acquisition. I mean, when Apple bought Siri, it sort of hit the the headlines, and then nobody heard anything more about it for a couple of years, and then Siri showed up, and everybody got excited because of what it could do. Um, I also think, you know, it, a lot of the way people are talking about Siri is 
today is that it's just sort of, and that the way Apple is thinking about it today is that it's just this sort of like dumb voice interface. And I mean dumb not as in like dis, in a dismissive way, but that it's not especially smart or, or helpful. Um, and, and people still primarily are thinking of Siri in terms of voice. That's not how Apple's thinking about Siri. I mean, it was last year that Apple started baking in more of the stuff like the proactive stuff, building search more deeply into Siri. Um, it, clearly, Apple is thinking in broader terms than than everyone else about what, what they think Siri to be. Um, the problem is we just don't have any evidence of what Apple's done in the last year because that's not the way Apple does things. Um, and I'm not trying to come to Apple's defense unreasonably. I, th I think Worldwide Developers Conference is going to be a huge tell about whether or not Apple has been moving deeper into this space and if they're going to be able to accomplish very much in, in comparison to both the new sort of exciting startups out there like Vive, you know, or Google, who obviously is really well established and showed off some cool things. It's worth pointing out, though, that a lot of the stuff that Google showed off at I.O. is not shipping. And they've said later this year on a lot of that stuff, and we'll have to see what actually does ship later this year and and how well it works. So I, I think the reality is, is everybody's still at the beginning of this. And the problem is, is Apple hasn't yet sort of showed up to the finish or to the starting line, right, for this next stage. And because they haven't showed up yet to the starting line, people are wondering if they're going to show up at all. Yeah, I, th I think the other thing that's worth talking about is I think there are at least three separate aspects to all of this. And I think, you know, one is, <clears throat> you know, the Siri, for example, is, is mostly on phones. Yes, it's also on uh, iPads, it's also to some extent on the Apple TV, although not the full set of functionality. Um, but, you know, it's mostly in certain places and not yet in others. So there's that side of things and the whole idea of, you know, a box that sits in your home a la Amazon Echo or Google Home and, you know, Apple isn't there yet. So, you know, they're quote unquote behind in that. Um, another aspect is Siri as an assistant in the places where it does exist, there's the voice recognition aspect of it. So how good is it at recognizing what you're actually saying and interpreting that correctly and then presenting an effective response? And then the third side of it is all the AI and machine learning and everything behind that response to your voice. So assuming that Siri does interpret your voice and your command or question appropriately, can it then uh, dig into its various sources of data and uh, present you with a response that's intelligent and appropriate and useful? Um, and so I think it's worth talking through each of those three areas because from a box perspective, yes, Amazon Echo is out there today. To your point just now, Google Home is not out there today. It's going to be shipping sometime later in the year and, and we don't know all the specifics of you know pricing or distribution or anything else around that. So Apple's really only behind the Echo and yes, the Echo seems to have sold fairly well, but we're still very early on in this trend. So I think it's, it's a huge exaggeration to say that Apple's somehow you know, woefully behind in that space. And if they're working on something, then, then the gap may end up being fairly small. But it's worth thinking about where each of these companies is coming from. You know, Amazon, yes, they're very strong in the home speaker business, as it were, um, but it re Alexa really doesn't exist anywhere else yet. And it's just starting to make its way onto their TV devices, the Fire Stick and the Firebox. Uh, there's a rumor that they'll have a tablet that will run it too, but they have no position at all in smartphones, for example, or on PCs or tablets or anywhere else today. And so, yes, Amazon's very strong in this one category, but you know these assistants are most useful when they follow us throughout our lives, and, and this simply doesn't do that yet. So, uh, yes, it's very strong in that one category, but Amazon has these huge gaps in what they're doing that are extremely important to them and that they're really going to struggle to overcome. 
Uh, Apple's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. They are absolutely in smartphones and tablets. Have a small presence on the TV with Apple TV. They have you know kind of no presence with their sort of uh, always on device in the home. They do have the smartwatch, which is designed to some extent. You know, there's two ways of approaching this. One is you have a device in every place where you might be. One is the other one is that you have a single device that follows literally follows you everywhere or is attached to you in the case of the Apple Watch. The problem is that very few people have Apple Watches today, so it's not really a, a solution for everyone just yet. But anyways, that's the, the first of those three things I talked about. The second one is voice recognition. And there I think, you know, that's one of the series' biggest weaknesses still is, is it's still incredibly frustrating to try to talk to Siri and have it understand what you're saying. I'd say a lot of the time when I talk to it, either my watch or my phone misinterprets what I'm saying and takes two or three attempts to get it done, in which case all the utility of using voice is gone. And so I think, you know, that needs to improve fairly significantly. Google certainly does that better even on smartphones, even on iPhones for that matter. Um, and so Apple needs to do better there. Uh, the Echo is is very, very good at this. And obviously with a larger speaker that's designed for far field voice recognition, um, you know, you can do different things, but, you know, Apple needs to improve in that department. And then there's the whole machine learning and AI stuff. And I actually find when Apple understands what I'm saying, it's very good for the functions that I know it does. The biggest weakness for me is there's a lot of stuff it doesn't even claim to be able to do yet. And one of those is contextual stuff. So if I ask one question, then a follow-up question, it needs to use the context of the first question to, to put the second one, uh, to interpret the second question appropriately. Another one is third-party integrations, and that's one of the things that Apple's supposed to be adding potentially at WWDC. And then there's the whole issue of you know privacy and so on. And we talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast, but to what extent does Apple's privacy stance prevent it from learning as much about you as it might and putting that in context and giving an intelligent response? And so that's another real question. So there's lots of stuff to talk about here, which we, we won't have time to cover, but you know, it's often all conflated into one big Apple's not very good at this stuff. And in reality, I think there are at least those three different things like Apple isn't in the home, but could be and isn't that far behind, and is very strong in these other areas. One is about voice recognition. And one is about the actual kind of uh, 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 recognition of not just the, the voice side of things, but actually turn that natural language processing and everything else that goes with it. So there's a lot of different aspects to this. Yeah, well, and in the, and that third point you make, there's there's an element to that that's really important to remember, which is that all of this machine learning, right, and this contextual-based response comes with a personality, right? I mean, Siri, Siri definitely has a persona. Like you feel like there's a, there's there's your phone has this sort of personality in the way it communicates with you. Um, that's going to be an interesting thing to watch play out. Uh, Google has a has a habit of being creepy, at times. I think that can that can be off-putting to some people. Obviously, not everybody, but to some, in, in the way that it can be intrusive, in the way the company can kind of be intrusive into personal lives. Apple seems to be a lot more sensitive to that. Um, and it'll be interesting to watch that part play out because there is a balance between what this assistant can do for you and what you actually want it to do for you, knowing it's being run by some big company somewhere. Where that has access to all this information about you, and I, I think the I think it'll be fascinating to watch how these personalities of these assistants develop over the years, and how we as consumers respond to these personalities. So it's it's not just about the machine learning, but it's about how that machine learning manifests itself to us as we interact with a, a you know an assistant that 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 seems to have unique characteristics that make us like them or not. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, there's also two different aspects to all this machine learning and AI stuff too. There's one that is about getting to know you personally. And obviously the smartphone's the best place to do with, 
that with because that's where you spend most of your time during the day. And so Apple obviously has an advantage there. Google obviously has an advantage there. Everybody else is sort of disadvantaged by that unless they somehow manage to get people to use their specific assistant on a third-party device. Um, but the other aspect of it is making sense of that using the context of information from the world as a whole. And that's where Google has a real strength because they have obviously massive access to information around the world and they've been feeding lots of this to their various engines and so on for, for analysis. Um, you know, Apple's with Spotlight Search and so on on the iPhone has some of that at least and has been kind of building up a database of what do people look for and what do they mean when they look for these things and so on. But it's obviously way behind in terms of the sheer volume of data. And so the question is just can they match that side of things, that kind of broad-based set of data? Can they buy it in perhaps from third parties? Could they make other acquisitions that would give them access to that? Um, to supplement kind of what they learn about you personally. And that's another big question that I don't think has been answered yet. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see, you know, what's announced at WWDC as far as these things. I think the third-party integration stuff, I think we talked about briefly last week, but, you know, this is a big question for Apple. There's strategic reasons not to do it. There are strategic reasons to do it. Um, and, and it'll be very interesting to see where the balance ends up falling with that in terms of what they announce in a few weeks' time. Well, I think we're about out of time on, on our three uh, segments today. So we'll wrap up there um, and just close out with our, our weekly pick. Um, there'll be uh, one or two links that we'll include on the website relating to what we've just been talking about there. We, we, I mentioned Marco Arment's piece, for example, and Walt Mossberg's and some other things. And so we'll link to those. Um, just to wrap up then with that weekly pick, it's my turn this time around. Again, this is where we take in turns to recommend something that we've um, been enjoying or found useful and think our listeners might find useful too. Again, this isn't sort of native advertising. This isn't product placement of any kind. We're not paid to promote any of this stuff. It's just stuff that we've generally found useful. Um, the thing I want to recommend today is, uh, well, a couple of things that are kind of closely tied together. One is um, Recode. So you may well know Recode as a news website and uh, and use that already. But they'd also do a set of podcasts. And I've been listening to these podcasts a lot recently as I've been in the car. Um, and they're really very good. And uh, the Recode Media one with Peter Kafka is particularly good. Um, and there are a couple of others, Recode Replay, which basically is a lot of the talks from the Recode conferences, and there's Recode Decode with Kara Swisher, and they have several others as well. Those are the three I tend to listen to the most. Um, the Recode Media ones are particularly interesting um, because they dive into the media business in depth, uh, and they had one this past week, which is an interview with Jason Hershorn, who has a fascinating history across all kinds of different businesses, um, but uh, it's that that kind of leads me to the second thing that I wanted to talk about, which is Jason Hershorn's website, which is redef.com, has a series of newsletters about interesting topics. And there are, I think, five major topics in total. Um, it started with a media one. Um, so there's media and there's also fashion, sports, music and tech. Not all of those are of interest to me, but I'm signed up for several of these. And they have a newsletter that comes out every day that has a brief sort of introduction, which is, I think, styled as a rant and rave from whoever the curator is for that particular newsletter. And, and Jason's the guy for media, but there are others for the other segments. Uh, but then it has a whole set of links of interesting stuff, interesting articles on the web about that topic. So if it's media, there'll be articles about media. If it's sports, it'll be about whatever's going on in sports today. Lots of really interesting stuff. And it's a great way of kind of filtering through the noise of all the stuff that gets published every day and finding the stuff that's really interesting and meaningful. So if you're interested in any of those verticals, I suggest signing up for those newsletters. And if you're interested in media or um, tech in general, then the Recode podcasts are well worth checking out too. And I'll put up links to both of those on the website too. 
So thanks very much for being with us. As always, um, we appreciate you spending the time with us and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>